Our Heavenly Father, Father, we turn our mind and our attention to the rituals, to the traditions that have been made a part of our Christian experience. Paul's discourse, Father, is our opportunity to hear from you through his writing on what it is you wish to see in traditional terms, in our rituals and our behaviors, in honoring you. And men, Father, are so prone to create their own and to ignore the ones you've given us. We don't want to do that. So I pray, Lord, that what we learned this morning would be something we can imply in our in our immediate moment in this Sunday as we attend to the Lord's Supper. I pray that you'd also give us a heart to see the big picture, to recognize the meaning behind what we do and to understand how ritual and tradition fits into your purpose and plan and, and help us, Father, not serve it for its own sake. But give us wisdom, Father, to use it as it's intended. And I pray, Father, we'd also have respect for the traditions that have been handed down. I pray you'd each give us a heart of, of compliance and submission to those things that have been placed in our lives through the Word, through the Spirit, through our leaders, so that even the smallest details of these things, Father, wouldn't be overlooked, but our hearts and our spirit, Father, would be submitted. And through all this, Father, we pray you'd give us a clearer understanding of yourself and of your Son, so that at the end of all of this, Father, we can be more like you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul's discourse on liberty has led him into this correction to the Corinthians. We've been studying liberty. We left liberty. Now Paul's still somewhat on the topic of liberty is dealing with traditions he's heard about being abused in the Corinth. And particularly, there were two areas that he's decided he wanted to discuss. Two areas of Christian ritual that Paul expected the church to observe in keeping with the word of God. And last week we looked at the first of those. Today we look at the second. And the first of those rituals was regarding head coverings. The society of Paul's day, the choice to wear or to not wear head covering conveyed a certain meaning as we looked at last week. And I'll summarize very briefly for all of us what we learned. We learned that for a man to wear a head covering in church, it meant in their culture that he was rejecting the idea that he was under the authority of Christ. The head covering was a symbol of the barrier between him and the Lord. So removing that barrier, not wearing a head covering, was a way of saying, of testifying, that this man was under the authority of God. If a man chose, therefore, to wear a hat, knowing that the culture had this meaning associated with with hats, if he knowingly went against the cultural expectation, then he was stating by his behavior that he chose not to be submitted, and therefore he was bringing shame to Christ, we heard last week. And then likewise, Paul says that for a woman in that culture to not wear a head covering, in that case, she was communicating that she was not submitted to her husband's authority, for that's how the culture interpreted that behavior. In her case, the presence of a head covering in any form became a symbol that she recognized she did have an authority between her and Christ in the sense of the family in the sense of how a family line of authority was established. When she took off her head covering then, she was claiming that she did not have to live under the authority of her husband, but that she was equal with men in respect to authority and therefore didn't need a head covering. These are the messages that the culture is associated with those behaviors. You may have noticed in verse 10 last week, Paul says a woman must remember her place of submission because of the angels, which is an interesting phrase. That's Paul reminding his readers of a time in the past, various times in the past, when the failure of a woman to be covered by the authority of her husband led her to be deceived by the angelic realm. 
particularly the woman in the garden, and then later women on earth in the time of Noah, were victims of sinful angels who took advantage of those women without spiritual cover. Paul warns the church not to return then to a state where women are living without spiritual cover and thereby becoming vulnerable to the schemes of angels. The message associated with the head coverings was culturally determined, and so we said last week there was no way for the Corinthian church to avoid those messages or dispute them. Paul explained that since these rituals had their source in the creation story itself, the actions of the church in what they did with their head coverings was either an affirmation or a denial of the truth of the creation account, of the spiritual truths that it embodied. Those rituals were declaring that God made man as a reflection of his glory, he made woman as a reflection of man's glory, and the cultural practice of head coverings became a way of testifying to these truths. And that's why Paul urged the church to continue respecting these traditions as they had been doing. And then as I wrapped up last week, we said that when a man-made ritual loses its intended message, then the ritual itself ceases to be important or necessary. Today, in our society, including in our general church society, wherever you go, it's no longer the case that we associate the creation account with the wearing of head coverings or scarves. Generally, men and women don't wear head coverings much anymore, apart from ball caps and the like. So when we see a man remove his hat in church, we interpret that merely as polite etiquette. None of us sit around and say, oh yeah, he's demonstrating that he's submitted to Christ. Some of us know that, but it's not generally understood anymore. Likewise, if you see a woman come into church wearing a head covering, you don't look at her and go, oh yeah, that's because she submitted to her husband. Some know that, but generally we don't understand that anymore. Now, you could argue that perhaps the church should reinstitute those things and teach around them, and that's certainly appropriate, and nothing would be wrong if we chose to do so. But we do not have to reinstate those practices of head coverings in order to be in compliance with what Paul is teaching in this chapter. I can be in compliance with what Paul's teaching in chapter 11 without reinstituting that specific ritual. Instead, I can respect and honor the spiritual message of headship as it's represented in the creation story by using modern ways to convey that very same message. Most of all, by observing Christian headship in the home. I think it's very possible, in fact, it's probably been historically the case that many people wear the head covering thing and yet don't actually practice proper headship in the home where a husband's word in spiritual matters is the word of the home, and we're all in the family, fall in line in submission to his decisions concerning spiritual matters. When we do these things in our heart, we obey the commandment of chapter 11. But if we reinstitute man-made ritual absent the spiritual truth behind it, we're simply repeating a pharisaical style of religion. We're making the outside matter while the inside stays dirty. That's never the intent of Scripture. God is not concerned, I believe, with what we wear on our head if that tradition has lost its meaning. What he is concerned about is whether we're living under headship and testifying with all that we can that we believe God's plan for the family. To elevate the ritual above the message is unhelpful, and actually at times it can be very dangerous. There's a story of a priest and a pastor and a rabbi. You know where you're going when you get that start. A priest and a pastor and a rabbi who decide to see whose cultural rituals, whose traditional rituals are most effective for the purpose of converting. And they come up with a test that they're each going to walk out into the nearby woods, find a bear, use their rituals and convert the bear. They all go out in the woods and when they all return, 
They each relate their experience. The first is the priest. He says, I read to a bear from the catechism, sprinkled him with holy water, and next week he's agreed to have his first communion. Well, the next pastor says, well, I found a bearer by a stream. I preached God's word to him, and I baptized him right there in the river. And then as they turn to the rabbi, they notice he's bandaged from head to foot. And as he speaks, he says, you know, looking back, maybe I shouldn't have started with circumcision. So rituals can be very dangerous. Moving on. I summarized the first to make the point that there is ritual that can be man-made. And if that ritual conveys a message that we agree with, we need to respect the ritual so that we don't appear to be contradicting the message. But when man-made ritual loses its significance, we move on. We move on from that ritual to whatever is modern and present day so that we continue to affirm the truth and do so in an effective manner rather than becoming slaves to man-made ritual that don't have meaning anymore. Now, in the second half of this chapter, Paul is going to move on to another tradition. And in this case, because of the way the church is conducting itself in this second area, they're actually doing damage to the message. So Paul begins to introduce the problem in that practice in verse 17. So read from verse 17 through verse 22. Paul says, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it, for there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. So Paul moves into verse 17, and he switches gears. And you should notice already because of the tone. Remember how he began in verse 1? Paul started this chapter with a praise. For the church. In the case of the first issue, he praised them because they had largely held to the tradition of head coverings. Paul was just reemphasizing why they had that tradition, why it was important. He wanted to make sure they hadn't lost the message in it. In this case, he says, I do not praise you. He says, when I give you this instruction, I do not praise you. What he means is, in giving you the following instruction, in what's now going to come, I'm now not praising you anymore. It's with regard to the most significant Christian tradition that we have, and that is the Lord's Supper. Paul says, in the practice of this ritual, the church is coming together for the worse and not for the better. That the way the church was engaging in the Lord's Supper was so contrary to the intentions of what the Lord had in mind when he gave it to the church, that they were actually making things worse by doing it than if they didn't do it at all. And once again, Paul is referring here to the message behind the ritual. Their behavior was sending a bad message rather than communicating the good message that the Lord intended when he instituted the practice for the church. In verse 18, notice Paul begins to outline what they're doing wrong as they observe the meal. First, I've got to give you a little background on the cultural traditions of this day. In ancient times, religious worship services of any kind usually included a lavish meal as part of the worship. So if it didn't matter if you were pagan or if you were Jewish or now in the Christian tradition, there was an expectation that if you came together for a worship service, someone was going to feed you. The practice of enjoying a meal together was already common. So when we think about the Lord's Supper, a meal was not unique. The idea of eating was not unique. But of course, 
Our observance of the Lord's Supper serves to communicate an entirely different message, something very unique and very different. And so it comes with certain restrictions. It's supposed to be observed in a certain way so that the message is clear. The religious meals of that day could be quite elaborate. They could be even excessive, especially in a pagan setting. In a pagan setting, the meal was the main event. People came for the meal. The worshipers attended primarily for that meal, just like most of you come for the donuts. So if the meal if the meal didn't happen, if they had taken that out of the regular service, it stands to reason very few people would have bothered continuing to attend the pagan service. Furthermore, the worshipers were expected to contribute to the food of the meal by bringing an animal for sacrifice to the temple. The food was shared to a degree, but it wasn't a perfectly fair deal. If a rich family was attending the pagan service, they would bring a choice animal and being rich, they typically had better stock. And they would set themselves apart from the rest of the congregation at the point of the meal to make sure that they ate their meat, the one they brought, and to keep others from taking too much or any of it for the most part. When a poor family came, they would contribute what they had, which was typically very meager, and that's the kind of meal they would get. They would have a meager meal coming from what they contributed. So that would result in divisions, just naturally. You'd have little groups set up in different parts of the pagan setting, eating what they brought and separate from everyone else so no one could take your meat. Paul's comments here would seem to suggest that the Corinthian church had begun to follow those exact same societal practices when they did the Lord's Supper in the Christian context. They just brought in that cultural thinking with them. So in verse 18, Paul says, I hear that there are divisions reported among you. This is different from the divisions we looked at in chapters 1 and 2. In chapters 1 and 2, Paul was criticizing them for associations that allowed them to distinguish one from another. I am of Paul, I am of Apollos. Those were divisions created by trying to associate with certain apostles. Here, though, the division we can see from what Paul says is related to the wealth and the selfishness of the worshipers in this meal service. He says the church had refashioned the Lord's Supper into a meal like that in the pagan temples. Look in verse 19. He says that the church was maintaining divisions during the meal, and look why, in order to make clear who was approved among them. The word approved means who's higher status, who's the richer. Paul means that what happened in the meal was the divisions were instituted by the wealthy in the church so that they could be apart from the rest of the church and their superior socioeconomic status was apparent to everyone. So they would come in with something to contribute to the meal. They would set up their table separate from the rest of the fellowship. They would eat their high-quality food. Remember, there's no pagan sacrifice. There's no meat being cut open and all of that. They just brought their picnic lunch. But they brought what a rich person could afford. And they sat down, and it says they ate it. And they were refusing, Paul says, to share that food with the poorer members of the congregation. Look in verse 22. Paul says, They despised and shamed those who had nothing. And they would eat their food before the others even had their food. So it's just a free for all. It would seem as though the poorest believers would come. The poor believers would come into the gathering, maybe with very little, if anything. And because they didn't have anything to eat, they wouldn't be participating in the Lord's Supper. I mean, can you imagine this? Can you imagine you have to bring your own elements? But of course, they're not just using simple elements. They're, they're having a full meal, a full feast. And you happen to be a family that just doesn't have the means to support that kind of lavish meal for the sake of your family. So maybe you bring something very meager, some bread. And that's your meal. But next to you is a family that's just pigging out 
But you can't have any of their food because in that tradition, pagan traditions and the, and the like, that's not appropriate. What kind of message is being sent by a meal that's constructed under these terms? Like BYOB and BYOW, right? Bread and wine. It would be like us having to bring our own. And if you forgot yours, you're out of luck. You don't get the Lord's Supper today. That's how theirs had turned out. So Paul says they are coming together for reasons other than to observe the true meaning of the Lord's Supper. They are coming together to show off, to enjoy a big meal, to get drunk, and to have a party. And those things have nothing in common with the purpose of observing the Lord's Supper. They had misunderstood the entire purpose of it. The ritual that Jesus gave the church has a specific purpose. It has a specific message. And when we distort the ritual as he assigned it, then the message is distorted also. It's just that simple. That's why Paul says that the way they were practicing it was doing more harm than good. Because think of the message they sent. An unbelieving pagan who wanders into the Christian church on a given Sunday or Saturday or whatever day. And that happens to be the day they conduct the Lord's Supper. Perhaps it was every time they met. And as you look around the room at what they're doing, what do you notice? You notice they're doing exactly what you're customarily seeing in a pagan temple. They're bringing a lot of food. They're eating it themselves. They're serving only themselves. They're not sharing it. If you're poor, you're out of luck. It's just the way it works. There's a party. Some are getting drunk. Well, you know what? This is just another pagan temple. And so it seems the message is totally worldly at that point. It's testifying to ungodly, sinful, fleshly desires. Well, where is God in that? Imagine what an unbeliever thinks of that. They couldn't help but thinking there's nothing new to the Christian message. Nothing I haven't already seen or heard. So in verse 22, Paul asks rhetorically, don't you have homes? Can't you go home and eat? If you're just hungry, take care of that problem before you come to church. Because this isn't a dining hall. This isn't the place you come to feed your flesh. We're not supposed to take the ritual of the Lord's Supper and equate it with an everyday, ordinary meal opportunity. This isn't lunch. This is a worship service. We're not free to take the traditions of the Lord's Supper and repurpose them for things that we prefer to do with the time. It's not available to us for that purpose. Unlike in the earlier case, unlike the tradition of wearing hats, this tradition was prescribed by Jesus in a certain way, in a certain form. So that it would convey a certain message. That's the distinction you have to remember as you read chapter 11. In the first half of the chapter, Paul is emphasizing a man-made tradition, which carries with it a spiritual message. But in the second half of the chapter, he's saying, you are now working in a realm where it's God's form and message. Neither is open to us to change at all. We must observe both as they were given. So Paul says he can't praise the church. Unlike in your first example, I'm sorry, I can't praise you here. Don't expect me to say you're doing the right thing. You may remember from an earlier lesson, I said that there are moments in this letter where Paul admonishes the church. And I define the word admonish as the combination of a rebuke with correction, with instruction. So Paul has now offered the rebuke. So it's time now to offer the instruction to give them the correct way in which they are to observe these things. Look in verse 23. He says, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as Paul moves from the rebuke step of admonishment and into the correction step of admonishment, he starts to lay out for them, here is what you should be doing. He says, the Lord himself gave a prescribed form and a prescribed message for this ritual. And he expected the church to observe it exactly as he gave it, without debate and without any tweaking of the specifics. And as Paul says it was delivered to him, he says, I gave it to you just as it was given to me. I've reported it to you faithfully. It's this opening statement in verse 23 that tells us we cannot change the form of the Lord's Supper. The form was prescribed. We are to keep the message honest and do what's required to communicate the message. But unlike the head covering, Paul says, look, I gave you a very specific form for how we do the Lord's Supper, that it was given to me by Christ, and we are obligated to keep as exactly the way he gave it to us. This is a very different kind of demand. It makes no difference what happens in our culture over time. It makes no difference whether the church even understands what it's doing. The form is not debatable. And then Paul begins to relate, well, what was passed along? Remember, Paul wrote this letter before any of the Gospels were written. So this is effectively the first time anyone had written to the church concerning how to do this. Now, Paul says he had told it to them already. They had heard it before. But this account is the first written account for the church on how to do the Lord's Supper. That's why this is such an important letter. His account begins with the original setting in which that ritual was established. It began, he says, on the night Jesus was betrayed, which we know means it's the night before he died. On that night, the Lord engaged in the Passover meal with the disciples in the upper room, and he did so for the benefit of those who oppose him, for those who are his enemies. The irony is this. Paul is saying, here's a ritual that Jesus undertook on the night that he was betrayed. On the night that those who hate him killed him, he was about to do something for them, creating a ritual to signify or memorialize what he was about to go do for those who hated him. We know that this moment was a Passover meal. We know from other scripture that this is happening during the Passover. But Paul's Greek audience in Corinth probably didn't give much attention to the Passover or know very much about it. So Paul doesn't make any attempt here to explain that connection. His interest goes beyond that side of it. He's more interested in outlining the reason why the church is commanded to keep this practice now. And the setting of the meal is central to how and why we practice it. And I do wonder how many of us really understand why we do this practice and what it means when we do it, even despite the scripture reading we give when we do it. The setting is central to understanding that message. Jesus was preparing to die on the cross the very next day. He knew he would die. He knew how he would die. And he knew why he had to die, even as he sat there with a group of men who had no clue. And the apostles, being largely oblivious to all these things, were going to have time after the fact to make sense of it, to come to reconcile with it in some sense, to realize why it all had to happen. But Jesus uses this occasion in the midst of the moment when it's all still unfolding to create a ritual, a tradition that would forever after explain what was about to occur so that there would be no confusion later about why the death occurred. Therefore, the meaning and the purpose of the Lord's Supper is intimately connected to this moment, which means we cannot approach the ritual in a casual or disrespectful manner. If Jesus instituted this ritual in connection with his own death, 
then it stands to reason that our approach to this moment, when we recreate it, in a sense, when we memorialize it, should be about the same as we would conduct ourselves at a funeral. Our demeanor, our respectful attitude, the environment we create, all that happens around that moment should be mindful of the setting in which it was originally instituted. From Jesus' state of mind, not from the state of mind of the ignorant apostles, but from the state of the mind of the one who instituted it, what he knew was coming, why he knew it was coming, what it meant. That should be our mindset. We can't honor the purpose and the meaning of this ritual if we see it as merely another opportunity to eat dinner. It's a completely different mindset. Look what we've already learned, though, about what was happening in the Corinthian church. The Corinthians had stripped all of the seriousness, all of the importance out of the ritual, rendering it meaningless. I mean, it had no more meaning than dinner. So the first thing he did was he established the context, the the moment and the seriousness of it. And then the steps. And these are the steps Jesus himself took. Paul says, first, Jesus took the bread and he blessed it and gave thanks. That's important because he's taking the bread we know from the Passover table, the bread that was already on the table for that meal. And the steps he took in the moment he took the bread and in the blessing of the bread and in the giving of the thanks that he did, those are steps that are outside the normal Passover ritual. That's very important. You have to understand the Passover meal, the Seder meal, is so heavily scripted. There's no variation. There's no freelancing. Every word, every action is scripted according to Jewish tradition. He just went off the script at this point and did something that makes no sense from a Passover point of view. It is an indication to us that he has departed from the Jewish tradition to institute something new. It is the interruption of past things and the instituting of new things. That's Paul's first point. This is a new tradition. Secondly, he announces the meaning of the symbols as they become a part of this ritual. He says the bread, for example, will forever after be a symbol of the body of the Messiah sacrificed on our behalf. That was not the meaning of the bread as the Jews understood it when they observed Passover. We know now that it was always meant to be a picture of Jesus, but in the way the Jews understood it, they didn't see that as yet. Now, forevermore, we testify to that truth. We repeat the moment using bread as he did then making a memorial of his death and his sacrifice when we do so. And like any memorial, we practice that ritual in a consistent way so that we will never lose sight of its meaning, so that there's always a memory of what it stands for and what happened to bring us to this. Thirdly, it says Jesus interrupted the meal again to take a cup of wine from the table. Now he's creating yet another symbol. And now he equates the wine that was on the table to the blood that Jesus himself will spill in order to forge the new covenant. You know, the writer of Hebrews teaches us that every covenant is made in blood. And this covenant, this most important of all covenants, is going to be formed through the spilling of God's own blood on behalf of men. So we're told that in the communion meal or in the Lord's Supper, we take a cup of the fruit of the vine. And it does not matter, by the way, whether it's alcoholic or not. That's not the essence of the symbol. The essence is not the alcoholic side of it. The essence is the red color of it. The essence is that it stands for blood whether it's alcoholic or not, is irrelevant. He says, you take the fruit of the vine as a symbol of Jesus' blood poured out on our behalf, the inaugurating of a covenant in blood being the point. And then fourth, Paul explains Jesus' expectations for the frequency of this ritual. Unlike other rituals, which you may practice only once, like water baptism, or like those you practice annually, like the Passover meal itself. This one is different than any other ritual that's practiced in that regard. This one is to be happening frequently, but without a prescribed period. There's no prescribed period here. 
In verses 25 and 26, we're told we're to conduct this ritual as often as we do, which is sort of circular when you think about it. But in other words, it's no set schedule. The church is free to establish for itself how often it wishes to observe this ritual, but by the tone, it's understood that we would be doing this routinely, frequently. And then lastly, Paul sets forth the message that was to be communicated through all of these practices. The message is twofold. And I mentioned earlier that we carry a respectful attitude much like you might have at a funeral, but that's only half of the message. The first half of the message is we proclaim that Jesus died to free us from sin. The elements of the meal stand for those reminders of that sacrificial death. You have the body, you have the body being broken, you have the body being made a sacrifice, the lamb, and so on. And then you have, on the other hand, the the wine, which is representative of blood spilled out. Well, that's death in itself, right? The spilling of blood is death. The life is in the blood. So every time we conduct the meal, as we will here shortly, we are declaring by simply participating in the ritual is a demonstration of a belief in what Christ did on the cross, in the death of Christ for our sin, in the spilling of blood to inaugurate a new covenant. Not by our words per se. It's not that we all stand up and state this out loud. It's also possible to state that truth by the repetition of this ritual in the prescribed manner. Even if I say nothing beyond simply observing it as it was given. This is the power of ritual. And Paul says, we do this, we observe this ritual until he returns. Observe this tradition until he returns. So the message we're conveying is, That he died, but he's alive. He's been put to death on our behalf, but like he returned to life, so will we. The hope of resurrection is an elementary part of what we're doing when we conduct the Lord's Supper. And in light of that message, we have to observe the meal whenever we conduct it in a balanced fashion, one that is combining sober reflection with joy and anticipation. We have to conduct this meal knowing its full message. How easy is it to slip into a mindset in which we do the Lord's Supper with a sour face and this joyless, mechanical fashion. But where's the joyful side? We want to communicate death, but we want to communicate hope. We want to communicate salvation through Christ's sacrifice, but we also want to communicate the hope that comes from that. What's the point in one without the other? Being respectful and not letting the context of the environment run off into crazy places But what we say can still be hopeful and joyful. When I conduct it, I like to end it with, come quickly, Lord Jesus, because we do this till you return, and amen, and there's that balance without it having to be crazy and we run around getting drunk. That's the excessive thing that Paul was talking about. Now, to end his correction, Paul addresses now what he wants them to do. Verses of 27 through 34. He says, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. So Paul says, if anyone persists 
in dishonoring this ritual in an improper way, they should know they are guilty of a sin. The sin in this case is the sin not of disobeying a ritual per se. It's bigger than that. Paul says we are guilty of the body and the blood, which is a way of saying we are guilty of the very sin that Jesus died to save us from. It's dishonoring the memory of Christ's death. That's the sin. He's not saying that we bear some special guilt for putting Jesus to death because of the way we conduct ourselves in this ritual. He's simply emphasizing the sad irony of anyone who would choose to sin in the course of remembering the sacrifice made for their sin. But it's a serious matter. Anyone who would specifically sin against the Lord's instructions is taking matters in a very bad direction for their own sake. And to prevent such a sin, Paul advises the church to consider their behavior. Every person, he says, is to examine himself. Now, this is another one of those verses that I think is misapplied sometimes when we do the Lord's Supper. The instruction to examine ourselves in conjunction with our observation of the Lord's Supper does not mean we are to search our hearts for whether we have sinned. Paul says we should ask ourselves, rather, are we keeping the right attitude and approach to the meal itself? Do we hold these symbols in their proper perspective? Do we maintain the right respectful attitude? Are we communicating that balanced message of remembering his death while looking in hope to his return? That's what he's asking you to examine. It was to the one who might be running around drunk, eating his big meal while the poor people are hungry. He says that guy or woman needs to examine himself and determine, are you observing the meal properly? That's his point. On the other hand, if you know, yes, I'm approaching it with the right mindset, then you are fine. Paul did not mean that we are to take a moment here and reflect on our sins. Think about why that's true. Think about what it would mean if we did do that. It's construed to suggest that when we participate in the Lord's Supper with any unrepentant sin, we are now guilty of even more sin. We are suggesting that Christ instituted a confession step as a part of the ritual. But did you notice Paul just explained the ritual? There's no confession. There's no point in the Last Supper in which Jesus said to everyone, okay, before you have this bread, I want you to all confess any existing sin you might be harboring in your heart. That's not part of the ritual. He didn't institute that. Paul's not adding that. It makes no sense, in fact, for us to reflect on our sins while we observe a ritual that's intended to remind us that the sins we have have already been paid for. What kind of nonsense is it doctrinally if I tell someone, right now you're about to take a piece of bread and a cup of juice that represents that your sin has been paid for and has been separated from you as far as the east is from the west. But before you do that, I want you to reflect on your sin. Folks, you just sent two messages. You sent a message of grace combined with a message of works, whether you realize it or not. You are asking someone to go to a mindset that says you must pay penance, even if that penance is just a contrite heart, before you're worthy of Christ's sacrifice. Friends, none of us are worthy of Christ's sacrifice. None of us ever will be worthy of Christ's sacrifice. You can't do anything in some brief moment in a dark room that's going to make you worthy of what Christ did on the cross. That's the whole reason he went to the cross. I'm not saying it's not healthy to consider your sin. I'm not saying we shouldn't repent. I mean, that goes without saying. Of course, that's a daily call to every Christian. What I'm saying is when we conduct the ritual, if we add steps like that ritualistically, we just added something to a ritual that we do not have privilege to change. We do not have the privilege to add steps. We do it as it was prescribed. Because when we add a step, we have the risk of changing the message. And in this particular case, I'm particularly troubled by adding that step because I believe that it's communicating, whether intentionally or not, that we have to 
bring ourselves to God in some clean form before God is allowing us to receive what he has for us. That's not the truth of Scripture. Thankfully, or we'd never make it. It borders on the mentality of works. The gift of salvation came freely, and we are memorializing that free gift of Christ's death when we take the Lord's Supper. Put no constraints on those who would accept it. It's for the believer. It's for the church. But it does not require the believer meet some test. Finally, Paul leaves the church with a warning. And this warning is what he says the Lord will do in disciplining any church body that does not observe this tradition properly. Earlier when he says in verse 29, notice the word body there. When Paul speaks of judging a body, he means the church body. So Paul's point is, if a church body goes on practicing the Lord's Supper in the wrong way, then that body is in harm's way. Some in that body will experience various things as a consequence of God's judgment for their sin in this regard. In fact, Paul says that there was evidence even in his day in Corinth to indicate that the Lord had already begun to take disciplinary action against this particular church body because of their sins and the way they were conducting the meal. He says there are members of this church who are suffering weaknesses, sicknesses, and he says even death. He uses the euphemism sleep, but he means death, which is to say the Lord must have revealed to Paul through the spirit that these cases of sickness and death that were occurring in Corinth were actually punishment brought by the Lord against this body of believers because of their sin in the conducting of this meal. The church was harming the symbols of Jesus's body. So he made a judgment in similar kind against their body for their disrespect. That's a powerful lesson, isn't it? We learn just through that phrase that the Lord is capable and willing at times to bring our physical bodies to harm, if necessary, to discipline us. You ever considered that? I mean, he's mentioning it here in conjunction with the Lord's Supper. So this is one case in which we know it's possible. But I don't think it's the only one. If the Lord is tested in any way by his own people, then he may, and I don't know under what conditions, but he may choose to take action in the physical realm against us to bring us into obedience. Or, as Paul says, at the very least, he'll remove us from the earth to minimize the damage we do against him. That's sobering stuff, isn't it? When I've considered this in the past, my first thought is, am I suffering any physical weaknesses right now? Well, you know, that's a healthy consideration. I'm not saying every time you're sick, it's the Lord's discipline. But what I am saying is, when you consider, am I struggling with something? Does it seem to just be with me in a consistent way? At least it's worth, I think, a moment of reflection to ask, could this be associated with sin? Now, once again, I'm not saying every time someone's sick, it's sin. That's certainly not the teaching of Scripture, and we can never project this on anyone. You can't go to someone else and say, you're sick because of your sin. Take the log out of your own eye, because at that point, you're off the track. What we can, though, say to ourselves is if I feel a conviction and I see it manifest, perhaps, in physical ways, that could be an indication that the Lord is working to show you your sin so that you will get better, you will change, and his discipline will be effective. Paul says we can avoid receiving the Lord's judgment if we rightly judge our own behaviors. And keep them in line with the Lord's commandments. Otherwise, he says, the Lord will do the judging. You can judge yourself or leave it to the Lord. And if the Lord decides to challenge us because of our sin, then he may step in in a way that we certainly don't want. So let's summarize Paul's instructions. Paul says, come together in unity, not in division. Come together for a message, not for a meal. Wait for each other so that you act in unity. 
Don't come out of hunger. Don't turn it into something that it's not meant to be. Show respect for the fact that it's a memorial to Jesus's death and then practice it in a way that testifies to his coming return. And then he says, if there are other details that I need to fix, I'll do it when I get there. Which I think is an important ending comment. What he means is these are the things every Christian should know. Yet there may be some specific things that every congregation does a little differently. And Paul didn't write the specific things that were unique to Corinth because he didn't want to make them a prescription for everyone. But he wrote the things that are the prescription, that are the mandate, that are consistent. And so when we practice it, as we will now, we're going to do our very best to follow the prescript of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to read it again as we do every time we practice the Lord's Supper. We're going to hopefully keep the attitude that we're supposed to. If anyone starts running around drunk, we're going to ask them to leave. Just joking, but we're going to take the attitude we're supposed to and we're going to memorialize Jesus's death in the way it was intended. And we're going to practice it until he comes back or until we see him ourselves face to face. So let's go to the Lord's Supper. I'll pray once and then we'll go to the handing out of the elements and conduct the meal as we should. Dear Heavenly Father, the instruction on the meal, Father, has been enlightening. I ask, Father, that each heart would be turned toward what we've learned and you would show us in our own way, individually, how we are to live according to the instructions you gave us. And I thank you, Father, that we have been given a fresh understanding this morning of why we do what we do, of what it means to examine ourselves in this context and what it doesn't mean, of why we want to be respectful, to be understood that you may take action against a body that consistently and defiantly goes against your word. We certainly do not wish to be Discipline, Father, we wish to be rewarded and we ask, Lord, that in this one ritual of all rituals you've given, we would always approach it with the right heart. And Father, more than anything, I pray the message of this church, even in this ritual, but in everything we do, would be a message of the truth of the gospel, a message that appreciates that you have given us these things so that we would declare truth and we would hold in our hearts, Father, a desire to do that. Thank you, Lord, for the reminder and for your word in Jesus name. Amen.